like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ruthie's Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. Last night, I was with my good friends, Josh Berger and Alexandra Crapanzano. I said I needed to go and write the introduction for Simon Sharma, today's guest, knowing he had taught them both at Harvard 20 years ago. As good friends do, they did my work for me. Simon Sharma, I never missed his class. And the other thing that I would never want to miss was I wanted to see what waistcoat and what glasses he would wear because he was not only brilliant and articulate and taught me about architecture and about art and politics in Europe, but he also taught me how to look good. I would simply say that Simon was and is an extraordinary storyteller. So we would all sit in his class and I took British Empire with him and we would be riveted the way that we would be riveted watching a a thriller, a suspense movie, because we would just be hanging on every word. Art and politics in Europe from 1660 to 1820. He was the best professor at Harvard, and I was gutted when he went to Columbia. Simon is our most renowned historian. His books on the French Revolution, the Dutch Masters, or most recently, Foreign Bodies, an exploration of pandemics and the health of nations, have changed the way we think. His television series, Civilization, the Story of the Jews, and the Power of Art, have reached millions. I know all this about Simon, but I know something else. He is a fantastic cook. There is much to admire and respect and be in awe of Simon, all of which I do, but quite simply, he's my great friend. Thank you, Ruthie. Well, I feel my my work on this earth is done. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They were so cute because they were there. I yeah. guess when was that? Was it twenty years ago? I think Josh. No, it was went longer than that because Harvard I've been. Reunion. Mm, I think it more like probably more like thirty because I moved um, from Harvard to Columbia in ninety three. But they're very kind, and um, I don't think they're kind because it's something I've heard over and over again. Mm-hmm. Okay, praise is embarrassing you. So why don't we go straight to the food and right. talk about your cooking? You just made a recipe in the kitchen of the River Cafe, or you helped, or right. you watched. I'm not sure which verb. Um, would you like to read the recipe for? Yeah, this this is tagliarini with broad beans and pancetta. And I chose it, I think, principally because of the broad beans. One of my nicknames, one of my two nicknames at school when I was about 12 was Beanie. What? And because I was... <laughs> you very thin? I was obsessively, I was obsessively enjoyed all forms of beans. And mm. I, I, really st- I really still do. But I think I enjoyed broad beans... The most. I love the way they shrivel, don't yeah, you? And you I love the it. way the color is different. That you get yeah. that pale green color, yeah. and then you and, and it's, it's a taupe color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so read your read this recipe. Here's here's then, the recipe. Shall I read the ingredients yeah. first? Yes, as please. well. Okay, so fifty grams butter, four TBs, tablespoons olive oil, one small trapea onion, finely sliced, 
two garlic cloves finely sliced, 100 grams of pancetta, matchstick cut, cut into matchsticks, 400 grams, very healthy, of broad beans, 100 milliliters of dry white wine, 250 grams of fine pasta tagliarini, a small bunch of mint um, and a small bunch of basil, both torn, I think, and 50 grams of pecorino. And um, yes, what was going on in the kitchen, very beautiful, I helped a bit with, um, you would just do a very simple, lovely braise of the onion and the garlic for about five, in butter and oil together, which is never be afraid of doing that un- until soft. And then the pancetta matchsticks go in. So everything is braising together. You don't want, and I was talking to Jess, um, whom I was cooking, uh, you don't, this is not a recipe where you want the pancetta to crisp up. Mm. So you, don't, you really want a gentle braise. Hi, I'm Jessica Philby, and I work at the River Cafe. And uh, we're here today making broad bean and pancetta sauce with Simon Sharma. We started with uh, a little bit of chopped onion in the base, right? Uh, which I just kind of melted down, and then I put the pancetta in until that. Oh, the pancetta's kind of there already. I'm looking yeah, exactly. at it it's like an idiot. It's too, I haven't had my coffee. It's too small. <laughs> so it's a tiny bit of yeah, really exactly. good pancetta. And then really. a little bit of garlic. Okay. We never use too much garlic. Okay. Here, so we don't want it to overpower anything. Right. Um, so everything is braising, really. Yeah, exactly. Including and a the little, pancetta. Uh, a bit of white wine so you're not. Yeah, fantastic. So you're not wanting the pancetta to be crispy. No, okay, I get it. Kind of more I get it. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Totally. Uh, and then I'm going to add a little and bit of pecorino at the end. Right. And some uh, fresh basil. Okay. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. And then comes the magic moment of adding the broad beans in their skins and stir to coat. You fling the wine in, and then the 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 gentle braising heat goes down even lower. Um, and everything marries together. You're, you're non-stop stirring, but, but, but only for about five minutes or so. Again, making sure the beans don't just completely mush up. And then you can actually... We used a freestanding mixer, uh, processor. Oh, yeah. Recipe here says, of course, puree. But actually, what we did was sort of bash the beans, yeah. really. So I'm just going to... Oh, here we are. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, um, right, a stand yeah. mixer. Which yeah. Is so it sticks to the pasta a bit more as well. Right. And then I, we were just making the sauce, so the tagliarini has to, obviously. Tagliarini, like, or very fine pasta, you're cooking it, and then almost, I don't know, what do you think, you know, a minute, a minute two, two minutes, two minutes you're really basically taking out almost as soon as the water has come to a boil. Make sure you keep a little half a cup of the pasta water. It's going to carry on cooking when you're adding it to the sauce. Okay, Jess, fantastic. You too, you too. Yes, yes, yes. You add the pasta to the sauce, not the other way around. Always, always. always, It's supposed to cook in the sauce, exactly. You have to persuade people to do that, really. Because then, you know, that whole idea also, also, I don't drain um, pasta. Uh, I always, you have a, if you have a colander Mm. next to you and you just lift, especially if you're doing tan, you just lift it out over the pot, right. put it into the colander with a pair of tongs, and then yeah. put it into the sauce next yeah, to it. Exactly. You don't have to do that thing of 
carrying it over to the sink, yeah. draining the pasta, putting it back in the pan. But you're just, and also then right. you get a bit of the water from the pasta into crucial. the sauce, which, which kind crucial. of, you know, yeah. which I always, I always love the Marcella Hazan when, when she says, toss, toss, toss. Yeah. And then toss again. Yeah, you know? and I think that nice. also that's is that nice. kind of you know that, that you can't you almost you can't toss pasta enough. No, to, I, that, absolutely right. I'm interested that you chose a recipe that the recipe has pancetta in it, and that brings uh, yeah. us to our next kind of starting at the very beginning of the Sharma household. So because you did grow up in a kosher home, and I did. so was pancetta. We were, we did an interview with Otto Lenke the other day, and he was telling us that in Tel Aviv there was a man who sold pork under the counter, yeah. like in Prohibition. But did you have pancetta it's, as a it's child? Called, um, it's called um, basal lavon, mm. which means literally white flesh, actually. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> That's yeah, the Hebrew for white flesh, it's, yeah. so it's no longer very secretive. No, it was very kosher, um, strictly kosher. Tell me about your family. Um, well... Uh, they were both great storytellers, my mother and father. I had a sister who was, um, uh, she died, hence was, about okay. um, 12 years ago now, 13 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't meant to happen particularly. My mother um, started, uh, she had a job as secretary to to Havilland Aircraft Corporation executives during the war. And then she was so brilliant, ferociously, organizationally brilliant. She became PA, personal assistant to Sir Basil, you know, the head of the whole thing within about six months. So come the end of the war, I was born in early 1945, the war was going on. I was a massive inconvenience and would not have happened, I think, had it not been for the fact that where my parents were living, which was near to the Havilland HQ in uh, Nebworth and Havilland, was in Welling Garden City in Hertfordshire. And their next-door neighbour was an obstetrician, a rather fancy society obstetrician. I only know this to be true because he confirmed it, wrote me a lovely letter when I became a young don at Cambridge saying, well, you not only would not have been a don, but you wouldn't have been any, you, you wouldn't have been around at all had it not for my persuading your mother that it was a good idea to have this baby. So he told her, he said, well, if you decide you should have this baby and you can have this baby, Moreover, in my very fancy clinic in Marylebone in Welbeck Street. And what he did not realise was that Welbeck Street would be the receiver of one of the last V2 rocket raids, but it didn't hit the clinic. It missed me and the clinic. So I was... Um, not supposed to happen, courtesy of both my mother and Adolf Hitler. You know, nonetheless, (laughs) actually, I I made it through. No, not together. They weren't in cahoots. So we were fairly strict. My father was... um, What did he do? Well, he wanted to be in the theatre. He was a very theatrical Mm. personality. You'll be shocked to discover. Yes. But it was very sad. He left school at 14, like a lot of Hackney Grammar, a lot of those kids. He was largely... but magnificently self-educated. I mean, we had not all... It's a mistake, actually. I'm going to be really disloyal now. But if you're part of the German-Jewish community that had come around time of the Nuremberg Laws mm. or later, your your house was full of books. If you're mm. part of an older Ashkenazi community, not quite so much. My father was very unusual in having not only all of Dickens, all of Shakespeare, mm. all of George Eliot, but he had things like, you know, Manzoni's he, mm. in translation, <laughs> The Betrothed. He had all of... Honoré de Balzac's Comedy Humaine. So, and he would read out loud on Sunday afternoons. So he wanted to be in a theatre. So what generation came from another country? Well, my father was born in 1901. His father was born in Botchan in Romania. Romania. And, and my father's 
grandfather was born in Izmir in, in, wow. in Ottoman Turkey. So my father, however, his, um, you know, we, we, we went to the theatre a lot. He produced charity shows, which ranged, because he had lots and lots of thespian friends, actors and producers, Ralph Richardson, for example, mm-hmm. Tyrone Guthrie. Mm-hmm. And um, he produced from, you know, productions of Macbeth to Oklahoma at the Gold's Green Hippodrome. So, did he, did he, he did Oklahoma? Yeah, he did, he did. Okay. So when I was about eight or nine, I think. So that was really lovely. Did he cook? Uh, no. Um, my mother was an arduous... I feel guilty, as all Jewish sons do, about slagging off my mum as a cook. She was an enthusiast, and there was something she could do. She was from a different Jewish tradition. She was from Lithuania, pure Ashkenazi. So they were um, soups she was good at. There was one called Garden of Eden Soup, which was based on lamb stock and lamb bones Mm -hmm. and barley which was a kind of deep, classic Lithuania, which was actually very good in, in the middle of winter. And sometimes white beans as well, butter beans or, or small white beans. She went into the kitchen because she, actually what happened to her after the war, she had to abandon her job. I was, you know, there um, now. I, and she did not really want to be back as what was then called a housewife, really. One scary moment I will never forget is when my mother, she had these old mincers, you know, that you attach. You still, some restaurants still have them, actually. So you you clamp them onto a table. table. Right, exactly. So you get a coarse mince. Mm. And when she was um, mincing up some beef, she managed to mince the end of one of her fingers (laughs) off. And um, so she bled a bit into it. I looked at this with, I must have been like nine or something, with horror. And I remember her poking around with the fork trying to find. She did wrap her finger in a bandage, um, but carried on cooking. And she never really found a bit of finger. And she did produce these clops, you know, the equivalent to a kind of kosher hamburger. And I looked on with absolute horror. And my mother said, um, uh, she was good when she made jokes, which wasn't, that often they were very funny mm. and she said don't tell your father after all it's perfectly kosher so I was looking to see if my dad suddenly you know was chewing was suspiciously yeah. really and it's quite interesting about women who don't have an interest in cooking you know yeah. that they don't have to you know that actually if she there were so many other things she might have been interested that in right that perhaps the but what's interesting, yeah. I suppose, is what, what did you actually then eat? Were meal times a pleasure for someone who loves food so much? Right. Did you sit um, down to dinner and just wish that it tasted better, or did you not? Yeah, know? my my mother. Um, there was what my sister and I called a Friday night memorial chicken, mm. which was inevitably over roasted. Yeah. And in in um, deference to my father's love affair with garlic, which my mm. mother did not share. There'd be one lonely clove rattling one. around there somewhere. Yeah. So it was always dried out. Um, that we really wished. Um, chicken soup made from scratch was actually okay. Did right, you well, sit down to dinner every night as a yeah, family? Did. You we did. did. Yeah, and so did. she would prepare dinner, your father would come home, yeah. and you and your sister when she was yeah, old enough to come right. to the table. The one thing I want to before we leave the family kitchen... No, let's not leave the family kitchen. We can stay okay. there for a The one thing my mother did very well, which was... Um, and it's interesting in English cooking, because famously um, fried, uh, not poached uh, gefilte fish, that's mm-hmm. a rather horrible graying thing, 
um, kosher form of um, canelle de brochet. <laughs> um, the, the, the first time that Jewish cooking appears that I know of in print um, is Eliza Acton's book, cookery yeah. book, which is, I think is 1845. Yeah. And there's a little add-on chapter in the second edition on Jewish cooking, which is then um, slightly fancy Sephardi, Balkan and Turkish mm. cooking, kind of fried fish patties instead, as we'd say, cod mm. cakes or something yeah. like that, which she describes as being eaten cold sometimes in the morning, even for breakfast, which we did. Yeah. My mother did that very, very well, actually. Did she? Did they go uh, to take you to restaurants? Yes. This is the arbitrariness of being kosher. If you're really strictly, strictly super kosher, you would never go to anything except kosher restaurants. Okay. That my, my parents had redefined the Torah mm-hmm. and the rules <laughs> of kosher would say, it's fine providing you don't have yeah. bacon or right. don't have meat, which is absurd, of course. Yeah. So we went to places like in, again, the 50s, the Trocadero, which was so grand, and then owned by our, our mutual wonderful friend Nigella's family, the Salmons, yeah. and that was magnificent. I remember seeing and not quite believing the miracle of peanuts sitting in what I thought was a silver bowl. It was a really stainless right. steel. Yeah. And then you went down, the Savoy Grill was another place, were these for special occasion, or would you just, your father come uh, well, home and say, we're going out? Yes, he would, tonight. yes, yes, the latter. <laughs> we certainly would go special occasions. Yeah. Um, Scott's and Simpson's, I think, mm. you know, and the place was sort quite of just steaming. Yeah. They were quite grand, yes, when mm. my dad was extravagant as, yeah. in that way. Um, if you, He was very much like um, Max Bialystok and the producers, yeah. flaunt it, baby, flaunt yeah. it. He did <laughs> tend Theatri- to flaunt theatrical, it. Theatrical, you know. So, and yes, so, so uh, yeah. cloche and tureens and yeah. all the ceremoniousness of eating yeah. fish, particularly. We were a great Dover Soul family. Fish. Exactly. So eating out and eating at home and eating... Seemed we it did well, have a quality. Really. I, it, it was a priority. It yeah. was a kind of idea that you oh, ate yeah, well in the Shaman house. Said, yes, yeah. it, the family was food. There's no doubt about yeah. that. Whatever one yeah. thought of the food, um, it, it was crucial. Yeah. And we've, my wife and I have always, I mean, not. I don't want to pat ourselves on the back egregiously, but we, A, we, we taught our children how to cook mm. from the time they were quite young. Mm. They're very good cooks, both of them. And it was always, there were no TV dinners. I mean, we yeah. sat, I sound so snobby and grand here. Yeah. Um, and of course, they'd go off, you know, if they had an extra late class at school, they would go off and have a pizza or a hamburger or something. But overwhelmingly, really, that family dinner was crucial because you talked and, you know, you, um, even when they were tight-lipped teenagers, yeah. uh, still no, you talked, so... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. 
You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you left this home of, you know, of, of food, of sitting right. down at the table, yeah. of your mother cooking your father with his great character, and you went, did you go straight to university when you went? Well, I had um, the, the so-called gap year. I had most of a gap year. And I was actually briefly on a kind of slightly broken-down cruise ship that went from Marseille to either Alexandria or Haifa. And I would poke around the kitchens there and sometimes actually even, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, and just was you know, massively in awe of these gigantic tureens of stuff that would be served out to all classes of of passengers. And then working on kibbutz, you were very close to, too close sometimes to, you know, the way the way food happened. I worked in the chicken shed on mm. kibbutz, the so-called lul, which was, they weren't battery chickens, but they were, they were sure not free-range chickens mm, either. Mm, mm. And my job was to load them onto the trucks going to the slaughterhouse, which was not fun. In case you didn't know, and I expect you did, the way to stop a chicken panicking is to turn it upside down. And then upside down. You do, yeah, yeah exactly. Hold that. it with the legs. So that wasn't great. But did you seek out, but, when you were in that year abroad and apart from being on the kibbutz, would you seek out the food of wherever you were? Is it something um, that was important food. to food? Street food, yeah. I loved Arab food, mm-hmm. actually. I had a distant relative was a mining engineer in the Negev Desert, mm. and he rattled around in an old Jeep. He was an incredibly romantic, rather raffish, bohemian figure. Well, bohemian isn't quite right, but certainly... He belonged to a colourful generation. Mm-hmm. So he was a very romantic figure to me. And he, was, he spoke Arabic very well. Mm-hmm. And we, we ate a lot of Arab metze, actually, in yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And the year then was 1962, 63. So that mm-hmm. was actually, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, maybe it's, you know, the, the tragic and poisonous enmity that now... Mm-hmm exists, we didn't necessarily, I mean, maybe we're kidding ourselves, mm. but we didn't feel, I mean, he, there were so many, so many Arab friends of his, no, so many Bedouin yeah. friends, actually. Yeah. So that was something. So long before wonderful Yotam came along and all our friends now, you know, yeah. I, I knew that what was called Israeli food was basically Arab food, yeah, mostly. Yeah. Or you were stuck with my mother's kitchen, yeah. you know, so... Well, that's you what we always... For... It's a revelation, isn't it? Now yeah. that, you know, people talk about, you know, because I grew up Jewish in upstate New York, right. and um, my parents' family were Ellis Island immigrants who came right. and brought the food that they had eaten, and, and food was very 
basic, I'd say. My grandmother yeah. actually was like a Hungarian pastry maker. She yeah. she rolled out the dough. She traveled with her rolling pin. And I always tell the story, but she came to see her first grandson in Woodstock, where we lived, in, in the countryside. And my mother said, do you want to see your first grandchild? And she said, no, let's eat first. You know, and that was <laughs> that was the kind of the view of food in our family. But when you went, but but also Britain was coming it's like, out. You know, all of the, the famous story, all of Jewish history can be wrapped into three short sentences. They tried to kill us. They failed. Let's eat. <laughs> we are now in Cambridge, right? Is that was it Cambridge? Yeah, and, and was uh, that was that really hardcore? Was that sixties? Well, I was still yeah. I, I arrived at Christ College Cambridge in nineteen sixty three. And I was still kosher, and it was really bizarre because I'd stopped believing in God, really, basically. I was certainly at least an agnostic. But somehow I didn't want to... My mother would send food, including cold chicken sometimes, Mm. and I didn't want to offend her. It was totally irrational. And I had a great professor um, who we used to have a kind of uh, a supper seminar, and he would produce gorgeous kind of oozy grouse and mm. things that everybody else and I would get a kind of bouncy rubber cheese omelette from the college and yeah. finally one of these terrible omelettes actually broke me and famously I've told this story a lot but it is true um, in 1965, I went to see the Ipcrest file, Len Dayton and I checked, did you ever know Len Dayton? I would love, we did actually Exchange letter. Is he still alive? Mm. He is still alive. No, he's not. I don't think he is. Okay. But, so but Michael Caine, of course. We yes, about I the wrote a piece for the Guardian called Michael Caine yeah. taught yeah. me to cook. Yeah. And I w- uh, not only did he write spy novels, one of which became yeah, yeah, the Ipcrest yeah. file film, but he yeah. wrote so-called cook strips, yeah. which yeah. were cartoons yeah. for men beginning to cook. Yeah. You know, what is parsley and yeah. how to dice an onion or mince parsley the yeah. proper way, and these were fantastic. And um, it was when there was a scene where Michael Caine says to his fellow spy, um, Courtney, I'm going to cook you the best meal you've ever had. And it cuts to her saying, Palmer, that that was the best meal I've ever had. Uh Do you you always wear your glasses? And he said, yes, Courtney, except in bed. And she takes the glasses off. I thought, okay, I've got to learn to cook. And, And I went out and bought my first little battery to cuisine. There was one gas ring at the end of the corridor in the student building at Christ. So I made friends with John Bolton, the college cook, and he had lent me the oven. And I made myself an omelette, um, hot butter, you know, mm-hmm. and I instantly knew, and it was, you know, bava was kind of creamy inside. I thought, boy, you are hopeless with almost anything at your hands, but this you instinctively understand and know how to do mm-hmm. you understand timing Eaters. and heat yeah. and yeah. so and then you can make people happy by doing it yeah. and then I was just absolutely Hooked. off and running Hooked. and that continued throughout yeah I, I only really cooked then... for myself or ate out in mm-hmm. Cambridge mm-hmm. and then yeah and then mm-hmm. in tiny spaces when I became a baby don I mean mm-hmm. you had just a kitchen the size of a toilet really mm-hmm. <laughs> and minute things and um Um, But I was just in love. I bought my first cookery book other than... It was actually Dayton's book 
of these cook strips. I'm yeah. not kidding. It was called Ue Le Garlic. Ue Le Garlic. And you can still find it. Yeah. But the first thing I bought was Elizabeth David's um, French one? Provincial oh, the Cooking. French provincial, yeah. The first serious thing I made with John Bolton's college oven was the Alsatian onion tart. Yeah. So Elizabeth David, of course, was wonderful to read and also incredibly forgiving or you could say irresponsible about quantities and then it was also the period of Robert Carrier's cards mm, which were yeah, great yeah. if you're a baby yeah, cook basically yeah. they were wonderful yeah. so there were all sorts of Anne Jane Grigson yeah. Alan Davidson yeah. there were everybody first slice your cookbook you yeah it, exactly yeah, yes yeah. exactly yeah. oh first slice Arabella Boxer yeah. yes yeah. I absolutely had that yeah. and it sort of slightly aggravates me because then the good food guy was in its prime I was one of those who would be one of those anonymous inspectors the good food guy and when people say oh English you know British food was until the 1980s or something. The 60s and 70s were amazingly mm. brave and adventurous yeah. and exhilarating. As, as a historian, yeah. how do you teach history? How do you look at history? How much do you look at history and food? You know, when I go to a city, well, the first thing I hit is the market, because it, not right. because I want to buy something, no, it tells but you because it tells you how do they sell the yeah. food, how do they grow it, yeah. what's the market like, are people dressed a certain Absolutely. way? And if we read your books and we listen to your yeah. lectures, are we learning about, are you thinking about I hope food? so. I think, I think very often it can be quite dramatic. For example, one thing that happened, um, Ancien Régime, pre-revolutionary France, actually, and post-revolution France too, but particularly in 18th century where they were looking at it, divided into a wheat culture and a rye culture. What's that? What and, do you mean? Um, uh, wheat, uh, wheat flour was uh, only for the aristocracy and the haute bourgeoisie. So people tended to eat... You know, rye we think of as wonderful right. now. It wasn't so wonderful. And there were certain amounts of wet France where the rye was very susceptible to a kind of rot, which actually produced uh, ergotism, which is a hallucinogenic state that in an extreme really? form, yeah, would not only give you trips you didn't want, but also would actually numb your circulation and mm. cause gangrene. Mm. And there were lots of incredibly serious reports about how terrifying that was. It was an area called the Sologne, S-O-L-O-G-N-E, where this was thought to be a terrible problem for the population. At the other end, of course, you cannot do Dutch history without food, not only yeah. because there are paintings, of course, yeah. Of, yeah. but because this extraordinary kind of compressed population has actually physically, literally engineered a landscape, both for horticulture and for fishing and for pasture. So it's an amazing... Amazingly, this is the best fed population possibly in the world, but mm. certainly in Europe. And poems are written to strawberries. And mm. uh, the, the, uh, only the Dutch would think of having a painter called Adrian Kurta who specializes in asparagus. Yeah. <laughs> paints asparagus. So it's a kind of festival of the stomach, yeah. really. Yeah. And that's very, that's, that, I have a whole chapter yeah. actually on on food and Dutch oh, culture. I think that could it? be part two of our series. I think we should do another one because I think a friend, a, a funny story is a friend of mine whose father married a woman who was a, a, a vegan. I mean she was just, and also this is years ago and he went into the hospital and well, she, while he was in the hospital he had a painting. You can only imagine what the painting was like because it had a lobster in it but she had the, the lobster painted out of the painting. <laughs> 
I was in the hospital. I mean, I thought probably any piece of art that actually had a lobster in it might be something that you'd wanted to paint on anyway. No, 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 there are great I'll, lobster paintings. Oh, come on, tell me one good Willem lobster Kalf. painting. Willem Kalf has, I, so these are kind I of... I defy you to show me a good lobster painting. I will show you one on my phone. Oh, yeah, we have the, yeah, the yeah, phone. The that doesn't count. <laughs> That, that doesn't count. That doesn't I will count. take you to lobster art. Okay, let's do so food well. and art. Yeah, I, I want to see the asparagus. Because, oh, yeah, no. Yeah. Um, at the Rex Museum is the famous Adrian Curta, which is an incredibly beautiful painting. Okay, but, uh, yeah. well, I can be convinced. And then a lot of the language about, you know, for example, in the 1620s, this was a tough time. The Dutch were up against it militarily. Yeah. Um, it was a very hard economic time. And not only did the paintings become rather monochrome, but also what actually gets shown and still life food yeah, paintings are the the what's thought of as the food of our fathers mm-hmm. in other words herring and cheese and bread mm. and then when they become a little richer the country is more at peace mm. and richer mm. then everything glitters with abundance yeah, far more kind of cherries and berries and sides of beef and so on and then you see today ed Richard having a painting saying hot vegetables have you seen that painting? no i haven't yeah no, it was no, no. Shea. and then of course all the cakes you know um yeah Tiebel. oh um uh, yeah, wayne wayne Tiebel. Tiebel. yeah you wonderful know, painting wonderful painting art, so. sick of being upsold at gyms my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. People either like or don't like my writing, but they will all say it is full of texture, really, of sensuousness, I think. And, uh, for example, this last, you know, this last book I've written, which is yes. about sort of, um, yes, vaccines and so on, much of it is set in India. So I was actually very interested in the hero who's a kind of traveling vaccinator called Vadim Havkin, who comes out of the Ukraine. He travels thousands of miles around India, um, and he becomes quite a religious Jew. He's not particularly a religious Jew when he starts his career. But I, I went to his account books, which simply 
um, have very detailed the archives in Jerusalem about what he's paying for what. And sure enough, he lists a craving for walnuts and chocolate. He lists actually mm. some of the food that he's eaten. Mm. Um, he he eats Brahmin food entirely. Mm. So that was an which I don't write about. I do mention the chocolate and walnuts, um, where he's surrounded by bubonic plague and cholera and so on. Uh, but I suppose actually in some sense, the kind of world I live in as a writer, um, it's not an extension of cooking or cooking extension of that, but they do, they are complementary to for me, I think. Mm. And more important, really, um, I make friends with shopkeepers yeah. um, in, in America. It's very important, not just the, 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 the man who brings fish to the farmer's market is a um, a, a guy called Ryan who's a school teacher in the week and mm. a fishmonger on the weekends and he's very clever and brilliant and we lark around together mm. and he will phone me up and tell me what's really been landed that morning um, from Long Island Sound but I've also known the Italian butcher Vinny for many many mm. years mm. and so you know, I just go to um, I mean the best of the family, I go to supermarkets for Paper towels and loo rolls, and I mean, I couldn't do without them. But um, but essentially, the shopping part is fine for me. So early in the morning, I mean, I won't say like you, darling, but you know, yeah. I am thinking about what what, and, you're going uh, to, what I'm going to actually yeah. be cooking in the well, evening. Is, yeah. Really, yeah, yeah. I drive into um, work. I think, what would I want to eat for? Like, you know, the yeah. other cafe we change the menu for right. every single meal. But right. a question also I wanted to ask you. And there are before. certain staples as yeah. well when the family yeah. was growing up, yeah. actually. What, I could what, well, one have. of them is, and they still, my daughter and son, uh, who was a vegetarian, now a lapsed vegetarian, polpettino, sort of Italian meatloaf, mm, mm. incredibly simple, which you have to, everybody out there, cook in a casserole. Not, you don't want to put it in a, on a, um, a sheet pan. Mm. You want to put it in a casserole mm. with a little wine or you've known vermouth. So it kind of, the actual meatloaf is actually braising with mm. a little old sprig mm. of thyme and yeah. sage. I think you should um, write a cookbook. Yeah, the family, I, we've said this and the family says, this is ridiculous. We all have our recipes. You have most of yeah, them, Dad. We have to do that. Have you and I did do recipes. I was food writer for DQ. I know. For a few years, so then I was doing recipes there. But you so should write them down. Should. You should. But also, well, from you, you know, I think um, you should. I think I okay. definitely think we're looking for okay. the. Do you do you, one? I wanted to ask is that when you are writing, what is your what is your eating? Do you eat before you when you're writing? Do you sit down and eat a meal, then go and write? And um, I'm a back? morning writer, so I have very minimal breakfast. Nearly always sheep's yogurt these mm-hmm. days, which I love. It can be quite voluptuous, but mm-hmm. it's not a big breakfast. Right, I'm a morning writer. I didn't used mm-hmm. to be. I used to be more of an evening, late evening. But I think having kids uh, and lunch is also. But sometimes you just especially on weekends, really, but I'm, I'm probably not a weekend writer anymore, I once was, but if you have a big lunch, you're screwed, Finish. basically. You're, yeah. Well, your imagination... There's a funny thing, you know this, about writing, is that you you write the way you want to write, and then some fairy dust, if you're lucky, suddenly lands on your brain, and the writing does itself. That magic moment when a sentence lies down on the page... And the sentence is just right, or at least on second and third mm. go, it's just right. That seldom happens after lunch. <laughs> Revision happens after lunch. Yeah. And I, I never write during the evening. We do want to end. First of all, I want to thank you for coming this Such morning. We love having you here. Um, if food is 
art, if you're going to convince me that food is art, if you're going to convince me that you can have a lobster in a painting or that you can eat when you want to share with your children, when you want to, you know, express time, have time with your mother or your father or when you're on a trip or you're in a kibbutz or wherever you are that you want to eat. You also eat sometimes just for comfort. Yeah. There's, there's, you just need food for comfort. And yeah. I just, as I ask everyone, as I asked you, Sir Simon Sharma, who's here with me today, lucky me, what would be your, I hope you don't need comfort very much, but if you do need comfort and you want to find it in food, what would you yeah. reach for? I do love this little pasta sauce, which I make is so simple. It's tuna and black olives and anchovies. Mm. And um, sometimes I halve little cherry tomatoes, but sometimes I just use tomato paste. And then the spaghetti or the fettuccine kind of cooks in that. So it's very quick. Your children always loved it. I don't know. I, my, my baby time was by the sea, really. Mm. So I think there is a... There is a deep fishy, and I'm an Aquarius, you know, a watery okay. person. So that always, oh, and a little lemon zest, yeah. actually, at the last minute in it. That's fantastically That's comforting. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Simon. It was a great morning. Thank you, Ruthie. The River Cafe Lookbook is now available in bookshops and online. It has over 100 recipes beautifully illustrated, with photographs from the renowned photographer Matthew Donaldson. The book has 50 delicious and easy-to-prepare recipes, including a host of River Cafe classics that have been specially adapted for new cooks. The River Cafe Lookbook, recipes for cooks of all ages. Ruthie's Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.